welcome to On Focus, brought to you by the Focal Therapy Clinic, where we connect you with issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, and often ignored. Prostate cancer is now the most commonly diagnosed cancer in the UK, and with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. I'm Claire Delmar. Joining me today is Tina Woods, founder of Collider Health and author of Live Longer with AI. Tina is an acknowledged leader in the fast-growing field of longevity science, and she's here to chat with me about the changing narrative around aging, the emerging science of longevity, and how this will impact treatment of men with prostate cancer in the future. Tina, welcome to On Focus, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Claire. It's good to be here. So what I'd like to do is start off with some definitions, because this is a really not quite nation. I think we're getting into something a little bit beyond that, but it's still quite new to a lot of people and certainly to our listeners. So a few definitions, for example, is longevity the same as aging well? What, what is longevity science? And what do you recognize as something I've heard you talk about before, which is the longevity dividend? You've got quite a lot of terms and definitions in there, which actually is an interesting first question to start off with, because what I've realized as I've been more involved in this uh, industry over the last three years or so, when we first started talking about longevity, a lot of people used to link it with sort of radical life extension. It was sort of, you know, people would sort of, you know, think about sort of Silicon Valley and all the sort of, uh, you know, Mm. Investors and entrepreneurs who are all sort of looking at this as a way to kind of, you know, maximize your, your lifespan. And, and yeah, or like even immortality sometimes came up. Yes, exactly. So, so it was kind of, kind of linked with that in its early days and all the bil- billionaires who wanted to live forever and all the rest of it. But it's gone through a huge, I guess, evolution. And I think most um, longevity scientists and entrepreneurs working in this field would see it quite differently now. And I think where it's really at is, is, is on looking at um, health span sort of maximizing, you know, the quality of your life and minimizing morbidity, you know, so compressing morbidity so that basically, you know, you, you make your life better for as long as possible. And the side effect is an increased lifespan. So that's sort of generally how people are thinking about it. And in terms of what it covers, I mean, I think you mentioned longevity science, of course, there's a huge um, element of the, the sort of the hot end of science in that description. And that's covers, you know, uh, covers off, and we can probably go into a little bit about the whole kind of basis of aging science, but, you know, it's more the sort of the biotech end of it, the AI-driven drug discovery is also encapsulated in the sort of longevity science, sort of geroscience, rejuvenation, biotechnology, gene therapy, geroprotectors, regenerative medicine. These are all kind of elements and um, and aspects that you you would kind of put into that more kind of longevity science basket. But the way that I see longevity is a much more, I guess, complex industry, actually, because in the end, if we're really talking about people living a healthier, longer life, you also have to think about all the wider determinants of health uh, and what goes into that. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's about the quality of your life and your environments, housing, you know, your financial wellness, uh, it actually spans quite a huge number of different industries and fields, you know, the quality of care that you get when you need more support. So that kind of covers up age tech. So I think, you know, it, it really comes down to how broad or how narrow do you want to go when you're talking about longevity. But if you want to describe living a longer, healthier life, you do actually have to go quite broad because there's so many factors. And my particular interest is about really understanding the wider determinants of health. And of course, the developments that we're seeing in data and AI, of course, are really shedding light and really giving us far more insight into what it is that is keeping us healthy and well, what it is that's uh, preventing and what we can do in our, you know, for our own part and preventing or delaying chronic diseases. And that includes our, you know, the, the disease that we, dr- we dread most, 
which is dementia, but obviously includes cancer in that as well. So mm -hmm. different people will have different labels to describe longevity. I think healthy longevity is sort of uh, very much the language I tend to use. Um, it's a little bit different, I think, than healthy aging. I think the problem with using aging, as I've been finding, having been in this industry for three, four years now, is that it just automatically gets linked to a more kind of negative view of growing older just because of aging and the way that it's it's sort of linked to all these other sort of terms. Like, yeah, yeah, kind of like decay. Well, yeah, exactly. So, so the language is so important. And actually, one of the projects I would really like to do is the whole language of, of longevity, the longevity lexicon. So we actually... Mm, 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 indeed. So one thing that um, has come to my attention um, in, you know, in this very broad field that you describe is this um, distinction between chronological age and biological mm. age. Mm. So can you explain what this means and just speak briefly about how you think that this difference could impact treatment for diseases in older people? Sure. I mean, you know, we all know what chronological age is. That's the years that we've been living, you know, yep, so yep, yep. I'm 56. But a biological age is a term that's getting used more widely, and it's all linked to understanding the whole scientific basis of aging. So uh, there's a very, very um, important scientific publication published in Cell in 2016 that describes the nine hallmarks of aging, which goes into some detail about the, the biological basis of aging. So it describes all the different elements. I mean, you know, a lot of people have, will have heard about, you know, our genes, for example. So genomic instability, how stable our genes are, is one element. Mm. Telomeres, people might have heard of. So it's mm -hmm. the caps of our genes that kind of protect our DNA from damage. So that's another element um, that's part of the hallmarks of aging. A loss of proteostasis, when proteins don't fold properly, they start to decay and your body doesn't uh, work as well. So these are all different types of aging, sort of free radicals, for example, and creating cellular damage or DNA damage. That's mm -hmm. another element that some people might have heard of. Of course, we all will age at different rates. And a lot of the time, it depends on the stresses, the environmental um, triggers and stresses that we expose ourselves to, but also inherently sort of what we're given by our parents, our, our, you know, our inherent sort of, you know, genetic code. But actually, a lot of this within our control. And that's a really interesting um, part of understanding aging is that actually there's a lot more that we can do than perhaps we realize, ever realized so the biological aging is essentially a measure of our health. I mean, in very, very simple terms about how fast our body is aging. So it's a, it's a better measure of describing how healthy you are. And it's a better way of describing sort of your trajectory into having, I guess, a healthier, longer life. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of research that's taking place in trying to ascribe, you know, what is your biological age? I mean, it's still very, very early days. And I think it's it's one of those things that will, you know, evolve, you know, very, very substantial the years to come, again, aided by artificial intelligence. And, and, you know, the scientists who are all working very, very hard to uncover what is it that puts us at risk of aging. And of course, you know, the really interesting, I guess, um, thesis is all the chronic diseases that we talk about, like hypertension, you know, cardiovascular disease, diabetes and, and indeed dementia are all linked um, to the underlying pathology and, and physiology of aging. Mm. So enormous amount that we can do to, you know, in terms of our lifestyle choices um, and the environments in which we live in. I mean, you know, some we can change. I mean, I think the, the food that we eat and, you know, um, the amount of exercise that we get are relatively easy to control. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you are or a disadvantage and you live in a ter in terrible housing, which is damp and, you know, you're sort of in overcrowded housing conditions, obviously that's an element that is less in your control because of course housing and stresses, you know, they've done a lot of research actually that shows that if you're in 
overcrowded situations or if you're in a stressful environment, um, you know, where you're worried about crime, these, these all actually have an impact on how your body responds to these stresses. If you're having problems at work, if you're, you know, and all the things that we're seeing with COVID, I mean, all have a bearing on how your body responds to all these stresses. So they all link back to this whole uh, understanding of what creates, um, you know, how fast we age. So in simple terms, uh, the, your biological age is an inherent measure of your innate health status. So, okay. So one of the things I was actually thinking about was that if, if you could differentiate between chronological and biological mm-hmm. age and say you met you know, a man who was 70 or two men that were chronologically age 70 in our accepted definition of chronological age, but they had very different biological ages. One was significantly younger. I'm putting that in inverted commas because we all have different definitions of what that might mean. You know, could you envisage a world where that then um, is accepted and, you know, would then lead to very different treatments? Because one of the things that we see, particularly in men over 70, and this has been exacerbated by COVID, is that there's kind of a one-size-fits-all policy on treatment for for prostate cancer, particularly um, localized. And, you know, this seems to be irrespective of lifestyle, personal circumstance, or you know, sometimes even disease specifics, but, you know, some of that might be defined in biological age. So what I'm wondering is how do you see the science as it gets more specific and accepted, changing that? And could you see that being more than even triaging where you said, well, this guy, you know, deserves better treatment because he's got a younger biological age to something that enables us to become more personalized? Do you see that as a future in in medical treatment, like real personalization? I mean, as biological age becomes more established and is is backed up by the evidence, because a lot of this, of course, is all in animal models and all the rest of it. So we have to be a bit careful about how far we can extrapolate into the future. I mean, I think think it's coming. And I think the inherent concept is definitely um, one that will resonate with anyone who is trying to designate a good strategy for a person who is suffering from cancer or indeed wants to stay healthier for as long as, as they want to. I think, yes, it will help triage, but also it will help design a program for that individual person that will mm-hmm. best meet life goals. So I think, you know, if we're, if we're talking about, you know, precision medicine, personalized healthcare, in the end, it's all about, you know, um, following a, a regimen, whether it's through your own means, you know, th- you know, through preventative health or through the treatment that you, you want from your, your clinicians and your and hospitals and what have you. Mm-hmm. It all comes down what you want from your life and, and your life goals, because what uh, someone might want from their life and being able to, you know, run a marathon every day, or, you know, will be very, very different to someone who basically just wants to be able to walk down to the local shop every day. So we all have different expectations, but I think, you know, we already use sort of performance status to decide, you know, what treatment a person should get, you know, in their cancer, you know, care. So there's no reason why, you know, some of the tools that we have, which are emerging from biological age could be very, very useful because, you know, we know that, you know, you can, you know, there's groups like Nightingale Health, Nightingale Health who I, um, the, the, guy, the CEO who I introduced my book, I mean, through a, a series of um, blood biomarkers, they can very accurately um, estimate how many years you've got left to live. Which is yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, that leads me on to you know this um, kind of well-recognized concept we often see in in medical treatment, and particularly amongst older patients, which is survivability. And um, you know, I, I guess one of the ways I could potentially see this changing, you know, the whole approach to survivability is exactly what you're talking about. That you know, it's more about longevity and what you're capable of, you know, delivering in in years ahead. Absolutely, yeah. 
Absolutely. And the other thing, too, which is kind of interesting in the case of cancer, I mean, you know, the whole it's two sides of the same coin, you know, the actual underlying disease processes that are at root for cancer as well as aging. So it's, it's kind of interesting when you think of it that way, you know, sort of the cells gone rogue. Um, some of the, the, the underlying mechanisms are exactly the same as when cells, you know, are, are, are undergoing the whole sort of aging process. So so that's kind of an interesting link there. But I think, you know, in the end, um, it's about understanding with the knowledge that, that we're acquiring and with the tools that we've got to target the best possible preventative help and also management strategies, whatever you're, you're being hit with. Because of course, what they're saying is that all these chronic diseases, including cancer, they all share the same root, you know, the underlying cellular processes. So mm, mm. I guess yeah. I'm, I'm kind of coming at this from, you know, men who, who come to us and already have been diagnosed with cancer, but, you know, there's such vast differences in, you know, sort of where they are, what their personal lifestyle is, et cetera. And, and yet it seems to be, you know, quite almost random about who gets what treatment because those conversations are not quite uniform, you know, they're not really standardized. And I just wonder if, if biological age is a, is a method of actually standardizing those conversations, you know, so that, that's just an interesting one, Um, which kind of leads me to my final question, which is um, all about how you actually, begin to get this dialogue and you referred earlier to developing a language around it you know Mm -hmm. into the public discourse and I know that you have um, recently I guess two years ago um, established the APPG the all-party parliamentary group in Westminster on longevity Mm -hmm. and I I know you've got some pretty influential politicians and policymakers um, (laughs) on that so what what are its aims and how do you see it having its most impact? Its broadest aim is it's about delivering on this government goal of achieving five extra years of healthy life expectancy by 2035 while minimizing health inequalities. And um, so that is a goal that was set in 2018. Um, And the reason why we formed the APG was to to, to look at a strategy because there's government money going into that goal. So this is through the UK Research and Innovation sort of grand challenge program, for example. So healthy aging is one strand of the Aging Society Grand Challenge where government are investing, you know, 300 million pounds to essentially sort of invest in this particular area for, you know, for the UK to succeed and, and, and lead in the world, for example. So this has been an ongoing program. But what we realized when we spend, this is the reason for the AWG, is that there is no real strategy. So over the course of about nine, 10 months, we brought together, you know, leading scientists, business people, policy professionals, et cetera, and a number of, you know, leading groups like King's Fund, Health Foundation, Genomics England, and around 50 organizations, we all came together to look at, well, what are the handful of things that we must do to be able to deliver on this, this goal? So we published that strategy in February 2020, you know, right before COVID hit. And some of the core recommendations, we've been very busy, obviously, there's been COVID, so we haven't been able to tackle everything, but a couple of recommendations we've been really tackling But I think fundamentally, the biggest impact we're going to see is actually seeing what all of us can do in our own ways to deliver on this goal. Because a lot of it comes down to, you know, the public and just having the mindset that actually with science and technology as we've got it now and and being driven in huge part by, you know, AI, for example, which is my particular interest, you know, we've actually got the tools and the knowledge now to be able to do far more than we ever dreamed was possible at an individual level, but also at a population health level. So coming together we can do a lot more to be able to see, A, the opportunity of living a longer, healthier life, you know, not see it with the dread that we used to, um, and see it in a much more positive, optimistic light, because there is a lot that we can do. And I think a lot of it is it comes down to knowledge, you know, politicians, you know, people, business leaders and, you know, CEOs, you know, we all suffer from not being able to keep up to date with everything that's taking place. I mean, the science and technology 
it's, it's exponentially exploding. So it's even more and more difficult every day that, and week that goes by to keep up. And then of course, COVID indeed has accelerated the scientific um, discovery that we're seeing already with vaccines and also the treatments that we're seeing linked to COVID. And of course, another interesting part of that is all the scientists in, in longevity have realized pretty early on that those who are getting impacted by COVID were those, yes, who were older, but actually yeah. the underlying basis of that was this going back to the root of aging. It's 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 the whole physiology and pathophysiology of the aging process and the chronic diseases. So people yeah. who hit hardest by COVID are the ones who, who are in ill health, which is why we really need to tackle ill health as an as an absolute priority. We were in the Lancet Healthy Longevity publication just before Christmas, you know, talking about our unhealthy nation. So we need to tackle preventative health in a massive way. So do you think that COVID is actually in some ways, um, you know, in 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 an almost uh, counterintuitive, positive way, highlighted um, older people and not just about preventative, but the science that enables us to treat older people in more personalized ways? So I think, you know, COVID has been, uh, you know, despite the the, the horror of it and, and the terrible impact it's had on the world, you know, there are quite a few silver linings that are coming out of it. A, it shed a spotlight on how important our health is um, as, as an asset that we must protect and do more to protect it. It's really put a spotlight on how we need to invest much more in, in, in preventative health and to keep healthy and well. It's also highlighted how ageism has been, has, you know, we can't ignore any longer. We have to ta- tackle that. We've seen Indeed. What, so, so that um, has shed light. And of course, we're seeing now with the policy response to everything that we're doing in care homes now and, you know, getting vaccinations to our most vulnerable citizens. So in many ways, it's been a real accelerant for, for things that we knew we needed to tackle. So I think there's a lot that we can take away from COVID that are really positive. Tina, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the on Focus program today. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Um, I mean, it's oh, not only been pleasure. illuminating. I, I, I suspect it's only the beginning of many conversations around what's, you know, clearly a an emergingly and fascinating topic. So thank you so much for introducing us to well, A huge pleasure, Claire, and, and thanks so, so much for, for the chance to, to chat. Okay. Um, a transcript of this interview is available on our website, along with several links to Tina's work on longevity and her recent book. Visit www.thefocaltherapyclinic.co.uk, where you can learn about alternative treatments for prostate cancer and how we approach patient care at the Focal Therapy Clinic. Also, you can access additional interviews with both patients and clinicians about their experiences with prostate cancer. Thanks for listening. And for me, Claire Delmar, see you next time.